Aldine and I are happy to be here, and that's the understatement of the year. I didn't get to come at least once every year or two and get myself filled up with some of this good Dell City sugar. I think my tea would go flat. I could think of a hundred things to say to you tonight. I tell you the honest truth, I'm just so anxious and hungry to preach to you and have you respond and, as they say, help me preach. I just want to get after it. But I do want to say this. God has led you to his man as pastor. I'll never forget the day I resigned and went to, to Houston, and I stood up here, and they started singing, Jesus is coming again. I stood here and bawled like a baby, Tilly. I really did. And then the Lord brought his man, Jim Draper. You know, everybody said when I left, it'd fall apart. They said that when Crawford left. They said when old Jim left, it'd fall apart. Y'all sure falling apart. My, my goodness. <laughs> Listen, you build it on Jesus. It isn't going to fall apart. Oh, how wonderfully gracious God has been to us in letting us come and to you in sending you this wonderful man of God to be your pastor. Thank you, Bailey, for inviting us. I, I try to sum up all of the hundred different reasons why I think God has blessed this church so uniquely. I want to be very honest with you and say that under heaven, I believe the main reason is probably that you honor the pastor as pastor. Most churches don't have the slightest idea what it means to honor the man of God as under-shepherd and follow him. And that place of leadership is not something that's demanded because you swing your weight around. It's something that is deserved and won. And God's men have had that from you. And the precious balance and support of the people and of the deacons and of the folks of this church, from the top of the choir to bald-headed old George up there, uh, every one of you under God, hello, George, is <laughs> just, just matchless. I'd like to tell you a whole bunch of funny jokes and get you to laughing and reminisce about good times and, and all this and that and what a great church it is. I want to say one serious thing and then preach. Well, that'll be serious, too. <laughs> the Lord is better to all of us than we deserve. And I have a wonderful church. And You know, Tilly said, uh, he said, I'll be glad when First Southern gets, gets through stocking all those Texas churches with pastors down there so we can keep one and go ahead on. And Bailey, if you ever leave here, you're crazy. I'll say it for sure. Well, you better just stay. But we're building the 15th of June, finally going to break ground. You know what it means to break ground and then not build, don't you? We've been down that road here before. We're finally going to build a 4,000-seat auditorium, and we have a million-dollar budget and 8,000 members, and it's a big church, it's a good church, and it's a growing church. And it's an important church, I think, like this one, to God's ministry and his work worldwide. And I just stand with my mouth open at the privilege of being there every day. But let me tell you something. God has done it all. We give God the glory. To God be the glory. I never heard it sung on this wise before. I'll tell you for sure. But let me tell you something. Eight, nine years ago, when I, as a music degree graduate at age 20 from OBU, with no experience except holding revivals in country churches, 
wanted to become a pastor and felt God led me to, there wasn't one church in the country that had given me a chance. That's the truth. Now, I, I, you know what I'm talking about, Telly. You know, I, I didn't know anything about Passion Church. I'll never forget I'd been about a year. And Deacons and I were having an anniversary dinner, and I said, uh, y'all will never know, you'll never know how little I knew about pastoring a church, how green I was when I became your pastor. And George Pollock said, yeah, we know, we know. We know. <laughs> you all gave me, when nobody else would, my first opportunity to pastor a church and to make my mistakes, and I'm still making them, plenty of them, and to cut my teeth and practice and kick the slats out of my theological cradle. And I just want to say that had you not done that, I, I wouldn't have ever had the chance. I wouldn't be a pastor today. And I want to thank God for you for letting me be your pastor. You know, they say a man's first pastor is, is his dearest. I'm only going to pastor two churches in my life. I'm the last place I'm ever going to be. I would, if I ever go through the trauma of leaving a group of people I love more than life itself, it'll be prone in a wooden box. It won't be walking out singing, there's a sweet spirit in this place. And I love you, and I thank you for yourselves. And I'm so happy to get to come tonight. I want to preach to you on, you know, I kind of feel like the boy stood up to preach his first sermon. And now I'm going to preach tonight on the subject, God, man, the universe, and other related subjects. <laughs> I am going to preach to you tonight on the rise of Antichrist, the second coming of Jesus, the battle of Armageddon, the rapture of the saints, the rise of Antichrist, and the end of the world. <laughs> and that's the truth. And we're going to start in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. Y'all do still believe in the second coming of Jesus, don't you? I figured about as much. All right. Joel, chapter 2, verse 28. That's way, way back there, right after Hosea, which comes right after Daniel, which comes right after Ezekiel, <laughs> more or less. All right. Joel 2.28. I'm going to be half through for you all. <laughs> Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour, pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Now let me reread that to you in a little bit of better understanding of what it means literally. And it shall come to pass in the last days that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. The prophet Joel clearly says that in the last days before the coming of Christ and the end of the world, the Holy Spirit will be poured on all flesh. Now when that happens, there's a shown-up revival that happens. There will be a mighty turning to God. There will be, and we are experiencing the birth pangs of it now, a great revival. I'm asked that more than about any other question. Will there be one at the end of the world, a last great revival before Jesus comes? And the answer is a resounding, yes, there will. But when you turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, you find an entirely different picture. We know where 2 Timothy is. Y'all, that's right after 1 Timothy. And it isn't right before 3 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. 
It is a different picture about the end of the world. This know that in the last days, perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such, and this is an inclusive tense, from all such, turn away. Now Joel says that in the last days there's going to be a great revival. Paul says in the last days there will be an awful undoing of social good, spiritual morality, and integrity in the world. He says the world will be a rotten, putrefying, festering sore. It will be besought with lasciviousness and filth and sin and perversion and wickedness and incest and immorality and drunkenness and murder and death. Joel says in the last days God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. There will be a great revival. Men will turn to God. There will be sweetness and victory. Who's right? They're both right. The fact of the matter is that there will be a revival both of righteousness and unrighteousness. Wickedness will increase and godliness will increase. And both of them will be at their zenith when Christ comes from heaven. And the fact also is that one of these facts will trigger off, be a catalyst to serve as a triggering effect to begin the other. And it all began in heaven years ago. Many centuries and millenniums ago, it seems that Lucifer's heart was filled with pride, and after years of servitude to God, he said, I'll be like God, I'm overtaking God, I'll exalt myself above God, and in short, Lucifer declared war on God. He was kicked out of heaven, came to the earth, turned himself into the devil, and began sin. And he still has one desire, to create a world, a social order, a lifestyle, a universe, free from and devoid of all heavenly authority. To create a universe in which man himself is God, and when man does what he wants to, Satan's will prevails. Down with God, down with authority, a world in rebellion against God, where man incarnated by the devil is saying, I'll be God. I'll create a world free of authority and the control of God and every symptom and manifestation of it. These are the two ideologies which behind the scenes of time are vying for suppression on the stage of life. And ladies and gentlemen, they are coming to a showdown. And the ultimate question, whose world is this? Who's going to be God is going to be resolved. It will be resolved in Armageddon, in the final climactic battle of the age, when the ultimate question to the original proposition, who will be God, is going to be resolved. You see, this is my Father's world. The Bible says all things were made by him and for him. All things consist. In the beginning was the Word, the Lagos, the Christ of God, the Alpha, the Omega, the whole alphabet, everything God had to say about himself, he said in a man, Jesus Christ, and this man was in the world. The world was made by him, and without him, the Lagos, the Word, Christ, was not anything made that was made nothing. He was God. He made it all. He came to the world, and the world crucified him. 
The world said, we'll not have this man to be Lord over us. Release him to us Barabbas and Judas and Napoleon and Hitler and self and lasciviousness and sin and a thousand reincarnations of an old proposition, a world devoid of heavenly control in which man is himself God. But let me tell you something. The will of God, though detained, is ultimately going to be done. The Bible says this world was made by him and for him, for his glory. What is the purpose of God? There are not many purposes of God. There is only one purpose of God in creation and in the plan of redemption. It is found in Romans chapter 8, and it is to bring many sons unto adoption. You see, the father was so taken with the son, was so enamored, was so filled with this Jesus that it seems that he had an obsession that he wanted to just fill heaven with billions of Jesuses to love. And so he told, he made Adam in his own image. And he told Adam to bring forth in his image. But because Adam sinned, Adam's image was scarred. And so now the sons of men are not made in the image of God, they are made in the image of Adam. And so men give birth to imperfect other men. And the plan of God is thwarted, but God says, not so. I am going to move into the affairs of man. I will redeem my creature. I will justify him. I will make him through faith in the shed blood of Christ, the only basis upon which the sins, sins are ever remitted in the Bible. And I will atone him. I will reinstate him. I will save him. I will call him. I will justify him. And I will glorify him. And he in heaven will be like my son was to begin with. And God's will will end up being done. And when we are in heaven, we shall be like him, but we shall see him as he is. You and I in our glorified heavenly state are going to be like Jesus. And if there are billions of Christians in heaven, there'll be billions of people like Jesus for the Father to love. And he will be very happy. And so this plan of God to bring many sons into adoption is thwarted by Satan, but it will not ultimately be thwarted because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It may be a forced, constrained, a forced and constrained acknowledgement, an acknowledgement, a confession unto damnation, or a confession this side of judgment unto salvation, but every knee will bow. Every tongue shall confess. The will of the Father will be done. And so where's it going to end? Who's going to get the glory? Whose world is this? Will the will of man and the will of Satan prevail and a, and a, a, a lifestyle be created where there is no God? Some of the Christian psychologists in our church and I were talking the other day and one of them said, Preacher, let me give you a good psychological definition of sin. He said, Sin is an attitude which wishes God were dead. Sin is an attitude in the heart which wishes it could live a lifestyle devoid of the control and authority of anybody or anything. And you will find in society this emerging, increasing in tendency, surfacing and unifying and personifying in every area of society. Ladies and gentlemen, the primary sign of the end of the age that we have just read, listen to it again. What does this say to you? Men will be covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient, unthankful, unholy, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despised, petty, high-minded, rebellious, arrogant, proud, conceited, down with God, down with the church, down with the government, down with the flag, down with the policeman, down with the soldier, down with everything. Do your own thing. 
It is called the mystery of iniquity, and it is, as Paul said in 2 Thessalonians, already at work. The world has never been as downright ugly and wicked and mean as it is today. And all of it is aimed at men, by men, who cannot directly get back at God against every institution which stands as a representative of God's authority on earth. The policeman, the preacher, the soldier, authority, leadership, responsibility, the government, anything that says here is authority over you is under attack and they are manifestations of God's ultimate authority. And so there is emerging in society a unifying, strengthening force which is coming stronger and stronger and stronger. But all of the time, God is still calling out a remnant. He is still doing his work and things like the Jesus movement are only the foreshadows of a great worldwide turning to God. And the truth of the matter is that one of them will trigger off the other. For you see, Satan's kingdom is not, as the exorcist suggests, in twisting heads and flying beds. Satan's kingdom is not in jangling telephones and pictures that fall off the wall and, and cabinets that go racing across the room. Satan's battleground is the heart. Satan's kingdom is temptation. And he always dangles the forbidden fruit, always the allurement, just beyond a man. And every society for over 2,000 years has lived with the illusion that real freedom is real happiness. And that to do anything I want, to go anywhere I want, to be anything I want to do, to live like the devil, to open the gates and let her rip morally, that this is the way to have true freedom. But the devil has overstepped himself. And now for the first time in the history of the world, we've got a generation of young men and women who can go anywhere and do do anything. You know what's happened? They find out sin is not where it's at after all. And they're unhappy. And they're confused. And they're disillusioned. And they're frustrated. They've blown all their gaskets. They've popped all their corks. Now what do they do? And into that resultant confusion and vacuum, the Holy Spirit is rushing to create an immense appetite and hunger for God. And people are turning to God by the thousands. And if people are, if the church is not rushing in with the truth about Jesus Christ and the answer to this hunger, then the world and, and false religions and heresies and cults and screwball religions will rush in and get them all mixed up. That's why the church has got to be a militant church, an aggressive church, a pressing forward church. The Bible says I'll build this rock in my church. The fact that myself, Jesus says, the gates of hell won't prevail against it. The gates of a city in the New and Old Testament were symbolic of their authority. And when a, when a, when a city goes to, to, into battle, it doesn't pick up its walls and its gates and take them with it. No, the gates stand still. It's the church that's on the move. It's the church that's on the assault. It's the church that's battling down the gates of hell. The church is aggressively on the assault out there in the world. And this unifying, strengthening church, this world church, this love of Christ, this bride of Christ, which is growing stronger as a backlash to the disappointment that is in sin and the increasing lawlessness and lasciviousness and immorality and rebellion and meanness against authority are both strengthening and are both unifying and converging. And they are going to come to a climax in the battle of Armageddon. Now, before we see very briefly how that's going to happen, let me suggest to you just five or six signs by which you may know that this is happening in our world today. Turn very quickly to Matthew chapter 24, please. Matthew chapter 24, if you will. And let's remember that one day the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, tell us, what should be the sign of thy coming of the end of the world? Here's the answer that Jesus gave them. Verse 4, he says, Take heed that no man deceive you, 
because at the end of the world there will be a time of great deception. You can turn on ten radio stations and listen to ten preachers today like Herbert W. Armstrong and other screwballs, and they can get you so con- I've listened to that man for 15 years, I can't tell you anything he believes about anything. He is a slippery-tongued, silver-tongued, split-tongued orator. You can't figure out what he says because he is not speaking finally and authoritatively on anything. And there are more people bewildered and confused with the religiosity that is being created because the church is not in with the truth in the vacuum than the world's ever known. Here's another thing. He said, in the last day, many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. Now, the word Christ is not a proper name like Bill or Joe or Tom or Jesus. It is a title. It means hero. It means God. It means Lord. It means captain. It means Messiah, boss, controller. People are going to come and say, I'm the way. I'm the Lord. I'm the one. Follow me. I've got the way out. I don't believe the church is going to go through the rapture, but when the church is taken out of the rapture, this world is going to see the most hellacious, rapacious, fallacious, impossible, awful chasm and schism of sin and incest and immorality and filth and disease you can imagine. And in that resultant confusion, many people are going to rise and say, I've got the answer. Follow me. I've got the answer. I know the hope. You see, society's falling apart, government's falling apart, religion's falling apart, the home's falling apart. One of the signs of the coming of Jesus will be a schizophrenic society. The whole world is falling apart. Why? Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, By him all things are made, and in him, Christ, all things consist. That means stick together. Jesus is the glue that makes society stick together. When he's left out of the home, when he's left out of the school, when he's left out of government, it just comes apart. That's exactly what's happening. And in that confusion, what are we going to do? Many false messiahs will say, this is the way, I'm the way, follow me, here's the way out, my platform is the end. Well, he goes on to say that nation will rise against nation and kingdom will rise against kingdom. What does that mean? Verse 7. You know what nation against nation means? That means when Germany fights China, Russia fights America. What does kingdom against kingdom mean? A kingdom is inside of a nation. That means a time will come in society when society will get so bad that not only can it get along with other nations, it can't even, nations can't even get along with themselves. Every time you've got an Ireland fighting itself or a Cambodia or a Laos or Vietnam, every time you have civil war inside of a nation, a nation fighting itself, it's a sign of the coming of Christ. Oh, there are hundreds of them. I don't know where to stop. Let's turn over. You've heard most of these. Let me point out two or three you might not have thought of. In 2 Timothy... Let's look at what Paul says. There are two or three signs in here. Second Timothy chapter 3. Here's some signs Paul adds. In the last days, perilous times shall come. You know what that means, perilous? Did you ever see a man walking across a gorge on a tightrope with a guy wire or across the top of a, a circus tent? He's, he's walking, that's the word picture here. He is walking perilously. He's just barely going to make it. All of civilization, all of the great governments of the world are teetering on the brink, just barely hanging on. And one of the signs, he says, will be just plain, downright mean. Rebellion, sedition, heresy, proud, boastful, blasphemies. We've looked at all of that. Let me show you another one. Look in verse 3. Truce breakers. Look at the fourth verse. Traitors. What does this mean? Who makes a truce? A man in a place of responsibility. We've seen one vice president go out of office. We may see another president go out in shame. I am saying to you that there will be wickedness in high places, that one of the signs of the end of the world will be that men who have been entrusted by their fellows with certain truces and trusts will not be worthy of them. 
You know what Watergate is to me? It's a bunch of crooked politicians calling a bunch of other crooked politicians a bunch of crooked politicians. The truth of the matter is that there aren't any of us that can stand very much close scrutiny, and they can find it on Irwin or Inouye or Ford or anybody they want to look for. Because the heart is desperately wicked. You will find increasingly in high places truth breakers, men who are unfaithful, incontinent, and who are undependable and unfaithful to the truth and the trust given them by a, a sacred trust given them by a believing, well-meaning people to places of high place, of high position. Let me show you another one. This one isn't pretty. But it's another major sign, and I'm going to show you why at the end of the world. Little word in verse 3, without natural affection. What does it mean to be without natural affection? Paul wrote this, so let's see what Paul has to say. Turn over to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. Verse 23 says that people change the glory of the corruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man. Men try to make gods like themselves. Now watch closely. The four-footed beasts and creeping things, wherefore God also gave them up. Three times this kind of person is called given up by God. Now I don't know that we can do much good saving anybody God gave up. God give them up to their own uncleanness, to the lust of their own heart, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and curve, serve the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use of that which is in against nature. There's lesbianism. And likewise, also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, homosexuality. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was meet or worthy or deserved or just. And even if they did not like, here's the kicker, to retain God in their knowledge. They couldn't retain God in their knowledge. God gave them up to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. God says you're going to do that which is not natural. It's the same word as inconvenient. Go ahead and do it. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wicked, covetousness, malice, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without natural affection, covenant breakers, without natural, uh, I'm sorry, understanding, without natural affection. There it is again. He spelled out precisely what he means. Implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit some things are worthy of death. Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them to do them. It's very hard, very cold and crucial and judgmental and caustic, and it's very biblical. You see, the Bible warns us that kinds of people will arise with great prominence who will be without natural affection. The gay liberation movement, the prominence of lesbianism and homosexuality is a sign of the coming of Jesus. Why? Because you have a kind of person who refuses to retain God in their knowledge and creates, Paul says, a kind of God like men. A man-made God, the kind of God that is compatible with who and what they are. Christian psychologist told me the other day that the reason that to his knowledge in 21 years of professional Christian counseling, every homosexual which he ever has dealt has been a hopeless case is this. He said there's a psychological and theological base for it. So here's what it is. He said the man gets in such a condition spiritually so devoid of the touch of God, so devoid of responsibility and love for God, he becomes so inverted, he becomes so proud that it is impossible for him to retain God in his knowledge and the man loses the power to love affectionately normally. He cannot love God he can, normally, he cannot love a woman normally, 
and he is so filled with pride and love for self, God being not retained in his knowledge, that in fact he cannot love anything except himself. And in fact, what he is doing theologically and psychologically is projecting into that other man a projection of self-love of himself. And he is, in effect, re-loving himself in that other man that he loves. He's simply loving his own body. That's all he can love. And the gay liberation people write letters to all the churches in Houston, like the one I got today, saying, please have pity on us. Please understand us. We love God, too. Yes, they do. What God do they love? Do they love the God that says they that do such things are worthy of death? Let me tell you something. You can call it a psychological abnormality. God, abnormality, God calls it sin. God says they that do such things are worthy of death. Three times God gives them up. I don't know if we can do anything with the people God gives up. I'm saying to you that you need to understand that men will create such a lifestyle for the end of the world that is impossible to love to love God so full of pride and self that they will not be able to love anything but themselves projected in others because they do not retain God in their knowledge. And they will love some kind of God, a God made after the form and fashion of other men. In other words, they love a man-made God. They love a God of the Bible which they have created in their own minds, which is an empathy and sympathy and compatibility with what they are. Not the God of the Bible who condemns their sin. Well, that isn't very popular. But it's just as much a sign from the Word of God of the coming of Jesus as is the sign which says that there will be the ripening fig tree, there will be the lightning flashing from the east to the west, and all the rest of the beautiful signs that we love to talk about. It's right there. Now, understand this. You remember that when Jesus came to this world, it was in fulfillment of prophecy. You see, God created the world by and for his son to love and to reign over. And ladies and gentlemen, God's son, Jesus, is going to have to reign for a period of time at least over a world that loves him and acknowledges him. That has to happen in fulfillment of prophecy. There has to be a reign of Christ on earth. There has to be a period of time when the world fulfills the will of God in honor of the son, Jesus Christ, who made the son for himself to give glory to himself. That has to happen. There's somebody else that knows that too, and that's the devil, and the devil doesn't want it to happen. And he knows that when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth, it's all over for him. He knows that he has no more chance that Jesus is going to control the earth. He's going to be bound hand and foot and cast in the lake of fire. You see, the devil knows the Bible as well and better than most Christians. He quoted it many, many times to Jesus. knows it very, very well. So what's going to happen simply is this. You and I are going to see in our society an increase of rebellion, an increase of righteousness, as these two forces emerge for the control of the world. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus Christ was born, the angel in Acts chapter 1 promised, and the word must be fulfilled, promised, he, this beloved virgin-born son, shall reign on the throne of his father David. The throne of his father David is not at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The throne of his father David is, is in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. But there's a small problem, you see. There's a Muslim mosque built there. And so somehow, when Jesus Christ comes in fulfillment of prophecy to reign for that thousand years on the temple in fulfillment of prophecy, that temple has got to be gone. 
Did you read back there where we said there shall be great earthquakes in the last days? I suggest that the possibility exists that one of those great earthquakes will destroy that temple so that the real temple can be built. When we were in Israel a year and a half ago, we found that there was a fault, a geological fault, all down the bottom across the mount of that place. And that when Jesus Christ comes and stands in the Mount of Olives, the Bible says, and that Mount of Olives overlooks the valley which leads up to the temple, just inside the eastern gate, promises that when he comes, the Mount of Olives will split and fall to the east and to the west. I am suggesting that that too means there will be earthquakes, and I think this is a part of the plan for this reason. You see, the Bible says that everything Satan touches falls. God made the earth a beautiful equatorial paradise. Between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, something happened. Possibly the Pleistocene age occurred, but somebody somewhere somehow touched the earth, and that that was beautiful in Genesis 1-1 became without form and void, a gaseous, nauseous, empty, cold, foreboding, awful, awesome place in Genesis 1-2. See, the Bible says that the earth fell, and because of that, God's going to renovate it. Sin touched the earth. The earth is cursed as well as man. And when Jesus comes again, the earth and the, all the elements in them, the heavens and the elements and the skies will be burnt, dissolved with a great heat. He's going to renovate the whole creation and make a new heaven and a new earth. So this earth is cracking and shifting and getting ready to fall apart in preparation for the new earth when Jesus comes and makes it all over again. And so there will be famines and earthquakes, geological, uh, 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 e ecological problems with the earth, with the world before Jesus comes. And so, somehow one of those earthquakes might destroy the temple so that the temple can be built where Jesus will reign in fulfillment of prophecy. Now, before Jesus Christ comes back, here's what's going to happen. In the rapture of the church when the Christians have been caught out, listen to me, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no man deceive you, for that day shall not come except there come a first the falling away. And the man of sin be revealed, that's the Antichrist, the son of perdition. Doesn't this sound like Satan? 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or all that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple. You see, look, when Jesus Christ comes back to this earth, the earth, Jesus will capture the Christians out in the secret rapture. And the earth left, left to its own designs will be left devoid of the Holy Spirit. Now you come down and you look in verse number, uh, let's see, he that letteth will let until he be taken out of the way, verse 7. The mystery of iniquity, the principle of sin is already at work. Only he who letteth will let till he be taken out of the way. That word let means restrain, hold back. Who in the world is holding back sin? Who keeps the devil from taking over? What keeps every woman from being molested, every man from being attacked, every building from being burned? What keeps everybody from being attacked before you get out of here? What is the force, the power in the world, which is the salt of the earth, the restraining force, which holds sin in check? It's the Holy Spirit. And he who now led us, the Holy Spirit, here's what's going to happen. After the rapture of the church, the Holy Spirit is in believers' lives. And when the Christians are taken out, the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out. Ladies and gentlemen, this world for three and a half years is going to get what it's always really wanted. All the sin it wants. And it will be so hellacious, it will be so awful, that men will cry to die, but they can't die. They will scream for the rocks of the mountains, please fall on us. 
The world will fall apart with disease and filth and awfulness. And into this vacuum, the Antichrist will arise and say, I've got the answer. And he, showing himself, look at it again. He, showing that he himself is God, or that is above all that is worshipped, verse 4, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing that he is God. The Antichrist will become heady with the wine of, of uh, elementary successes. And he will ultimately ascend the throne in Israel himself. He'll sit on David's throne, declaring, showing, saying, claiming that he is God. I'm God, he'll say. Worship me. Now, right there is where it all hits the fan. I mean, right there is where the cup of indignation is filled to the bitter brim. Right there is where God says, that's all she wrote. Jesus Christ is going to come from heaven. Look at verse 8. And then shall that wicked, capital W, that means the Antichrist, that's the name for him, be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with bombs and planes and tanks and atom bombs and nuclear warfare. No, with the brightness of his coming. Even him who is coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders. The Antichrist will be handsome. He will be powerful. He will be brilliant. He will have great personal charm. The world will be so attracted to him that they'll begin to say, maybe he's the Savior, maybe he's the Messiah. And finally he'll go to the temple and say, I am the Messiah, worship me. And Jesus will come, and the saints and all the holy angels with him. And they will fight in Megiddo in the battle of Armageddon around the hills of Jerusalem as, Jer as Jerusalem is the prize. Why Jerusalem? Because in prophecy of the angel who rules Jerusalem rules the world. It is promised to Jesus, Antichrist says, I'll take it, and the battle of Armageddon. As the devil and all of his cohorts converge on Jerusalem against Jesus and the holy angels and the saints coming in glory with him for the battle of Armageddon. You know what's going to happen? Jesus Christ will destroy them. Not one believer will die. Not one angel will be lost. They will so utterly desolate and destroy the armies of Antichrist that the blood will run to the bits of the horse's mouth and God will call for the, the animals and the birds from the four corners of the earth to come and lick clean the bones of the captains, the dead men, the great men. How will he destroy them? How will this battle be won? Look at it again in verse 8. Whom he shall destroy with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. I've got a little theory. The kingdoms of the devil is a kingdom of darkness. He loves sin, darkness, death, hell, and the grave. The kingdom of Jesus is white, beautiful, holy, purity, and light. And the white dazzling of the coming of the Son of God and the saints with their robes washed white by the blood of Jesus will be such filled with Shekinah glory and greatness and white, bright purity that they will blind the enemies of God. He will destroy them with the brightness of his coming. I believe that in the brightness of his coming, which will blind and dazzle them, that in frustration they will turn and slay each other. One believer will die. Then, and only then, not through the Peace Corps, and that's fine, not through the resolutions of the United Nations, and they try, but through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, there will be peace on earth. The will of God will be done. 
kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his son. Listen, God made this world by and for his son, to honor his son, to love his son, to glorify his son, to revere his son. Don't you think that the devil is going for one minute to write the last chapter of history? That'll be written by Christ. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And the world will honor Jesus Christ. He's the Alpha. He's the bread. He's the Christ. He's the deliverer. He's the everlasting God. He's the friend of friends. He's God. He's God of God, God of goodness, God of grace. He's helper and healer. He's the hope. He's the incarnate word, the just, the justifier. He's the king of kings and king of angels and king of men. He's the Lord and the Lord of lords, the Lord of earth, the Lord of heaven. He's the messenger. He's the Messiah. He's our master. He's the name above every name. He's the noble one. He's the only way and the only one. He is the P, our peace, the prince of peace, the Passover, the purifier. He's the quickener for the dead. He's the redeemer. The, he's the resurrection, the life. He's the savior. He's the satisfier. He's the shepherd. He's the truth, the testament, the testator. He's the unspeakable gift. He's very God of very God. He's the way, the word, the wonderful one. He's the express image of the living God. He's yesterday, today, and forever the same. Bless God, he's Zion's hope. He's the hope of the world. He's the hope of men. He's the hope of eternity. And he's coming to reign on this earth. And I say to you that every knee will bow. You will bow your knee in humility and confession and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a no good sinner. God, save me by your blood. Or you will accept him as your Savior tonight. Or you will bow your knee and confess and accept him as your judge. But you will bow the knee. You will accept him. You will honor Jesus Christ. You were created by him and for him in this world to get glory to his name and the will of God. Though detained is ultimately going to be done. That's why we sing all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that was yonder sacred we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting throng and crown him. Crown him. Crown him, Lord of all. I want to be in that throng. I want to be among that blood-bought, blood-washed, white, cleansed in the blood of Jesus. Throng!